probably pretty, pretty clear about the distinction between the four different stages or paths. Okay. I guess I have one question. Um, when you, you're saying that the the, uh, the person stream entry comes back seven more times, uh, doesn't that denote reincarnation? Yes. If you interpret it that way. Uh, is there another? Is there an, another interpretation? Uh, yes, and I think that what's important is, you know, for for a serious student of this material, is not to interpret that as being reincarnation of the personality, a person, a personality or a discrete entity. It is uh, the causal continuity of mental uh, predispositions that have been formed over a period of time, and that these can manifest in a completely new being, totally different person. Mm -hmm. But what what carries on is is this uh, collection of, uh, this collection of conditioning, this collection of of karmic predisposition. Thank you. And in that particular (coughs) way of looking at it too, there's no reason to assume that the entire collection of karmic predispositions that belong to one person will reappear as a unit in one other person. It could be distributed over several other pieces of people, mm-hmm. combined with karmic predispositions from other persons. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you take the predispositions that you seem to have come into this world with, they need not be attributed to a single individual. Just as the genes that make you what you are came from different individuals. Very good. Thank you. But the... On the other hand, if over the course of a lifetime a being has shape themselves through the practice of, of the Dharma and the perfections, then we can assume that that karma doesn't cease to exist when the body disintegrates. But it doesn't need to consist, it doesn't need to continue as a, an identical, a viable person, a separate entity. Good. Good, thank you. Yes. Can you go into other types of beings, like animals or plants? Or? Go into other types of beings. It could, uh, yes. Just mix up everything. That's right. So, the, like I say, you know, if if there's a part of you that uh, that hides in the shadows and and 
feasts on the dropping of others, that part of you could be reincarnated as a cockroach. To the which realm? The sense realm. Yeah, you said how about to the wouldn't it's sexual. Oh. Uh, well <clears throat> if we regard if we regard the mind as one of the six senses, then the con you know, the contents of the mind and mental object actually belong to the, the sense realm. At least to a certain degree. More refined mental contact, contents would belong to the, the form realm or the, the fine material realm. Anything else? Oh. As I was reading through this, um, there was sort of a question that, that three parts of it brought up for me. And I'm, I'm not even sure if I'm clear what the question is, but if I put it out, maybe you can help mm-hmm. me uh, figure it out. So the first part was several times in the first half. It's talking about being identified with yeah. uh, <clears throat> different things. And then there's the part about direct knowing. Mm-hmm. which I'd like to hear a little bit more about. And the two of those, how they relate perhaps to the description of a Buddha. And when it lists these things, the complete freedom from suffering, absence of craving, how that, um, how that relates to being identified with in a lot of ways. And what in there like wisdom born of a profound insight into the true nature of reality. I'm guessing that's the direct knowing that's part the direct of that. Knowing part. But it, it seems like that there's quite a bit of fuzziness in all of that mm-hmm. uh, for me. Okay. Um, well, we need to we need to narrow this down a little bit. <laughs> I know you you were hoping that I would help you with that. All right. Um, <coughs> You started out with the identification aspect. Okay, that's where this, where your mind, in its process of uh, selfing, um, when we, if we focus uh, on the question of uh, what am I or who am I, then uh, we'll see how the mind identifies. Like uh, the mind could try to identify the self with the body, right? I am my body. And that works up to a certain point. But only up to a certain point. But it's a a clear example of identification. Uh, Much, much stronger identification, identification, and identification that stands up more easily uh, for a longer period of time is identification with the mind. I am my mind. And uh, there's a lot of that in, you know, the idea of who we are as a person, as personality, is 
identification uh, with that aspect of the mind. And then there is the identification with consciousness. And this is uh, this is a, a, a really easy identification to make. You know, if you find the body unsatisfactory, the mind unsatisfactory, uh, the personality view unsatisfactory, is to identify with the experience of consciousness itself. And as a matter of fact, to get to that level, that is, that I just described a deconstruction of the experience of the self. To get to that level is actually a significant achievement, and uh, it gives rise to a particular kind of mystical experience, which I call the dualistic mystical experience, the experience of the witness, and uh, its name in, uh, uh, in the Hindu religions is Turiya. And this is something that, in an advanced state of meditation, is a common experience, <clears throat> where there is this sense that I am just the watcher, the witness, and this witness never changes. This witness becomes, you know, you realize that that beneath all of the reactions that you ordinarily experience in your life, there's always this witness who impassively observes and accepts everything and, you know, doesn't react to it and isn't changed by it. Perhaps you've had an experience of that at some time or another. I don't know. But it's something that comes to people and it can come briefly for a period of time. It's just... You know, you have this experience of being the completely detached, objective, objective observer of whatever arises and passes away. And uh, it can become more stable, it can be cultivated, you know, it can be something that you enter into consistently when you go into meditation. And uh, it is, and it represents an advanced stage in the deconstruction of the way we normally perceive things, particularly the self. And, but it does involve an identification. We are still identifying, and we have the sense of I, inherent sense of I, is now identified with this detached observer, this witness. So, This is, this is still a state of identification, and it's still uh, a state that involves illusion. But it also involves a greatly increased understanding and appreciation of things as they are. From the vantage point of the witness, we see how everything that arises and passes away is, you know, it's, it's basically... Uh, arising and passing away in the mind. It consists of mind stuff. It has no substantial reality. You know, we kind of see the emptiness of everything else while experiencing still an identification with consciousness itself. It's a very profound experience if it's sustained. It's a mystical experience. And it could lead a person to say, I realized my true self. I am consciousness. 
But if you think about it, this is still uh, an objective experience. It is a dualistic experience, and that's why I call it the dualistic mystical experience, because partly because whenever somebody's having this experience and I give them that label, it helps them to let go of the attachment that they're developing that, oh, this is it, this is I, you know, because I uh, say, oh, we're having a dualistic mystical experience. It's, oh, right away, I thought, well, yeah, I better not, okay, I'm willing to look at it more closely now that, you know, uh, I, I recognize that it's not, it's not necessarily the ultimate discovery. But it has, it has a lot to teach us. It's a very valuable experience. It's a good place to meditate because you watch the mind. And it allows you to become very familiar with the nature of the mind and the nature of the formations that arise in the mind. Um, very often, even people who are stream entrants, afterwards, they try to understand their uh, experience, which is very often the form of a pure consciousness experience. They're conscious, they're awake, there's no self, and there's no object. And so as their analytical mind tries to create a story around this to understand it, to put it together, it will do that as well. It will say, ah, that pure consciousness, that is my true self. And they may cling to that view right up to the point of becoming an arahant. So that's identification. There is, as a part of this, though, there's the direct knowledge. Um, when somebody has a pure consciousness experience, that is a direct knowing. It's knowing as being, not knowing in subject-object duality. Even though you can interpret it dualistically after the fact. And I'm not even sure it's such a bad thing to interpret it dualistically after the fact. Because part of we come out of that experience and there is this sense of being one with everything, of not of, of having discovered the truth that there is no separateness, uh, that all is one. But there's this element of consciousness, and it's very strong. Uh, the awareness of it is very strong. And afterwards, you look at other people, and you see that you still have this direct awareness of your own consciousness that's carried over so strongly from that experience. And then you see in other people, it's, that's the same consciousness. That's consciousness is everywhere in every other being, and it fits in really well with this the. Uh, blissful feeling of uh, uh, oneness and non-separation, and uh, it fits in really well with the with the uh, with this uh, new kind of compassion that is arising up in your heart. That you see that we're all one. We're all this consciousness, and that's true. And that it's not that saying they're recognizing that we're all in this consciousness is a delusion. But there's still a process of identification. We're not at a place where we can let go of being a separate self. And so we're identifying with, with that consciousness as being the nature of self. But at that point, it's not such a bad thing.
Um, that was just the beginning of your remarks. <laughs> okay, then you you went on to say something about the description of the Buddha. Let's see, I can't quite recall what you pointed to in that. Well, a- as you just described it, it was sort of um, a, pr- a transformation or progression mm-hmm. of um, of different types of of awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, moving into identifying with consciousness. Mm-hmm. So if you look in here at the description of a Buddha, so so you got up to the point of um, identifying with consciousness, and you said that, I think you said that although that might be um, useful or mm-hmm. and skillful to our path, that seem, you seem to be saying there's something sort of beyond that. And that would be, I'm guessing, the things that are described here in, in the description uh, of a Buddha. But I wonder, I guess there's a part of me that's wondering that if that is also a view and also an, a, a type of identification of being identified with. The description of a Buddha, whether that too is a type of identification. I, okay, that's a, that's a very penetrating question. Uh, um, because if we recognize that all of our experience, all of our ordinary experience, is constructed, and as that becomes clear to us, then we do have to wonder about these mystical experiences, are they too constructed? And on the one hand, if we want to approach this um, intellectually, we can point out that um, the nature of the experience itself and all of the descriptions, you know, if we collect together all of the different descriptions of this, the, the descriptions of the experience and the nature of the experience itself are in terms of it's not being constructed, not being mediated, it being directly known, that, you know, uh, that there, it being non-dual, that there, there being no no self, no knower, no experiencer, no constructor. So, just on a purely logical basis, we'll say, well, okay, it could be possible that this too is another construction of the mind, but it is different in that uh, it's most the most fundamental characteristic of the way it's described. Anytime somebody has it, is in terms opposite to that. That it's empty. That it's void that it's undifferentiated, that it's changeless, that it's uh, timeless, uh, and so forth. Another way to examine that intellectually is say, well, the way it's actually arrived at is by a process of of, uh, removing all of those mediating, constructing influences. Now, we could still say, Yes, but have we truly arrived at, at an entirely 
unmediated state, mediated state of direct knowing, a direct experience of uh, what lies behind all of our uh, projection. And I suppose that it remains possible. It's a very sophisticated version of that. This is something that the Buddha very carefully avoided ever even coming close to. He said, uh, he, he gave you the definition, gave us the definition of enlightenment that I gave you earlier. If a being is free from suffering, free from craving, free from ignorance of uh, belief in and attachment to his personal separate self, as a characteristics of an enlightened being, then uh, you could ask yourself, uh, and it's permanent, and it's absolutely permanent, uh, you could say, well, what does it matter? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's, I don't think that's something that, you know, I, I, I think that it would be safe to say that even if we postulated that the enlightened state of a Buddha was, was still a mentally constructed state, and then we would have to say, but it must be the most refined, constructed state that the human mind is capable of. So, and the being that is in that state is not concerned. They experience themselves as what they really are and what we what we rationally can agree that they really are. They're a body and a mind acting in the world out of, uh, as a result of causes and conditions. But they are a very special body and mind. It's a mind that has been cleansed and purified of all of those afflictions and doesn't uh, experience uh, itself uh, as a separate self. And, uh, it functions out of wisdom and compassion. So, so even if we postulated that perhaps this was a super sophisticated uh, conceptual construction at some level, uh, I don't think it really negates any of the thing, any of the other things that we say about it. But I will say that you'll never find a mystic at any of the levels of enlightenment who believes that. Thank you. Anything else? Yes. I have a question to the dualism of your witness consciousness explanation. When you talked in an earlier retreat about the ten steps to um, vipassana, 
Isn't that the same description, just observing the mind and whatever goes through the mind without getting attached, so mm -hmm. you become the witness? And That's right. you, you didn't talk about dualism at that point, so why is why do you bring this now up? What is the difference between vipassana then, the steps to inside meditation, and that witness consciousness you described? It's the same thing. Yeah. It's the same yeah. thing. It but is then it's still dualism then? It is still dualistic, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It is a dualistic consciousness that is able to uh, understand experience and to achieve insights. Now, the the ultimate insight is uh, is the direct experience where the fabrications of the mind cease, and you have the direct experience that that uh, produces a transformation to stream entry. Prior to that, as a part, the witness can, uh, or, or a meditator who is experiencing the witness, can have, uh, as a part of that process, direct experiences of impermanence uh, and, and so forth, which are the, they're small insights, they're, but they're exactly what adds up to the large insight in the end. Uh, which is another thing. I, let me... Somehow, we've come back to this point, and it must be the right time just to clarify that, you know, I, I did raise the issue of the experience versus the uh, state of being and enlightened being. And there has grown up this idea over time that the enlightenment experience is this one special, dramatic experience that changes a person. And it's become very well established sometime in the past 2,500 years, although the Buddha himself never spoke of it. Uh, it seems to have first taken root when a part of, uh, of the, uh, what's regarded as the scriptural material in Buddhism, a part of it called the Abhidhamma, was constructed. And that was written down about 500 years after the Buddha died. And there were actually several different versions of Abhidhamma written down. But what they all have in common is that they approach existence of an individual as being a series of moments of consciousness, discrete moments of consciousness. And it's almost inevitable that with that system of analysis, if you're looking at enlightenment, you have to come, there is the moment of consciousness, which is all, which is microscopically small unit of time that prior to that, they were a worldling, and after that, they are an Aryan, they're a stream enter. And I think that notion from the Abhidhamma, combined with the fact that in many people there is a profound experience, has led to the idea that the only way that people become enlightened is that they have this profound enlightenment experience. Called uh, in Pali, it's called Magapala, which means path and fruition. And in Sanskrit, it's called Darsana Marga, which means the path of seeing, where uh, a person has a direct experience of emptiness. But this is this is the experience where the fabrications of the mind cease, and the and the mind of the yogi dwells in the state of pure consciousness. And because there is an experience of no self and no object, 
and the process of fabrications has ceased. And the yogis arrived at this already with insights into no self and emptiness, that it crystallizes internally in their mind this transformation. And they come out of that as, uh, as the newly minted stream enterer. But when you look at, well, first of all, as I mentioned last night, when you look at the sutras, the Buddha doesn't talk about that at all. Uh, there are things that could fit into that paradigm, and there's other descriptions that clearly don't. If you look at modern accounts of enlightenment, and there's quite a few of them, you know, that you, I've given gathering them together, or you find, too, that although that's probably the most common description is that somebody has this profound enlightenment experience after which they're permanently changed, there is a substantial minority of accounts that don't involve that. That it happens over, that there, there is a period of time that can be identified, maybe a few hours and maybe a few days, over which uh, understanding comes on the person, sometimes in waves, one wave of understanding after another, or uh, uh, an intermingling of feelings. And a lot of what we confuse with enlightenment experience is the feelings that come up. The feeling of oneness, the feeling of bliss, you know, the, the, these, the emotional responses of the mind to the experience. Sometimes the person goes through a protracted period like that, uh, one person, um, she woke up one morning and realized that everything was different, but didn't know how it was different. And um, she did go to work that day, but not till very late. And uh, throughout the course of that day, she kept having these epiphanies one after another, you know, intermingled with these powerful, blissful feelings. Which, all of which made her not particularly functional that day. <laughs> yeah. But she said uh, that that finally all kind of worked its way out, but she was never the same since and never saw anything the same since. Yeah. So there wasn't this one experience. And then there seems to be a very small number of people who can't even point to that degree of specificity of a period of time, but they, in a more much in a much more gradual way, have come to find that, as I say, they they don't they realize that they don't see things in the same way that other people do, or that they used to do, that they don't react to things the same way uh, that other people do and that they used to do, and it's only through a gradual process of, uh, uh, of these kinds of uh, events that bring it into their awareness and reflection on it, that there consolidates in their mind the realization that they indeed have changed in a very profound way. And so I just wanted to bring that up and make you aware of that, that uh, enlightenment doesn't necessarily come about <coughs> in, uh, in the... Uh, Standard textbook version that all of a sudden, pow, you have a direct experience of something that you uh, never imagined before as possible. 
and they're forever changed. It can happen in different ways. I think what is similar in all of these, though, is that whether it happens gradually or abruptly, um, the internal structure of the mind that creates the person's worldview has become changed. It's a different view of the way things are. Not viewing yourself as a, uh, a discrete and separate, separately existing uh, being, permanent uh, and uh, unchanging and in charge of your mind and body and the recipient or experiencer or whatever happens to you. The, it's the disappearance of that view that is really crucial. And part of that, too, is the disappearance of the view that that the world is I, as the way I think it is. It consists of discrete entities similar to me, uh, and that they are understandable by me. Uh, and that the uh, idea I have in mind, in, in my mind of the world, is a, an accurate representation of a uh, self-existing external world. So th- these are, it is these views that constitute the ignorance, and it is the changing of those that constitutes the fundamental shift to becoming uh, a stream entrant. And this could happen all at once, or this could happen. Uh, in a a somewhat more gradual fashion. There's nothing to say that it has to happen all at once. It it certainly does, uh, but it's not the only way that it can happen. And the fact that it's not the only way that it happens helps us to understand it a little bit better. Because if it remains a dramatic, mystical experience, then it retains a certain mysteriousness and incomprehensibility that makes it harder for us to recognize what's actually taking place. If we realize it can happen gradually and see what the gradual transformation involves, it is a restructuring of the intuitive way we perceive reality. And that is what it is. Whether it happens all at once or... And I'm beginning to think that it's more likely to happen all at once the more internal resistance is in the mind, the more strongly you're attached to uh, the, the sense of being a separate personal self, the more likely it's going to come upon you like this ton of bricks that breaks through to the realization that it's not that way at all. And at the higher stages of the path, it's also, it's the same realization, but just at a deeper degree, producing uh, further change in the way your mind works at a somewhat deeper level, a more profound level.
very quiet. It's either, it's either a stage of digestion or... <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's see. We could move on to discussing some of these other things that I've identified under the description of a stream entrant. That's really what I was starting to talk about here, the experience and the idea that uh, there's always going to be this Madhapala or Dasana Marga experience. And I summarized for you there three possibilities. Is that somebody may have a dramatic experience after which they have the changes in view and attitude and behavior that by which we would say, aha, they are now a stream entrant, therefore that was a valid enlightenment experience. The second possibility, not at all uncommon, is somebody has a profound experience and it seems like, well, this is just, this sounds just like an enlightenment experience, but after the initial uh, bliss and glow wear off, they go back to being exactly the same way, way they were before, and there's no real change, in which case we'd say, well, uh, because they haven't had the change in, in view and attitude and behavior, they're not a stream entrant, and therefore that was a really nice experience they had, but it wasn't an enlightenment experience. And then the third possibility is that a person may manifest the changes that were identified by the Buddha as constituting uh, a stream entrant, but may not have a particular experience that they can refer back to retrospectively and say that that's, that's when it happened, that's what happened. <clears throat> there is something about that, though, in the, in, uh, the Buddhist tradition, in the modern Buddhist tradition, where it is accepted that the uh, uh, enlightenment experience is a necessary part of the process. Uh, it's also accepted that it is something that the yogi uh, should be able to, and must, to, to continue in their spiritual development, must be able to repeat. So the idea here is you have this experience of, of pure consciousness. The mind ceases its fabricating activities. Uh, it produces all the necessary changes at the level that you're at. But that to really consolidate that understanding and prepare your mind for the deepening stages that you should be able to return to that state of suspended fabrication. You should be able to re-experience nirvana. You should be able to have, once again, uh, uh, episodes where uh, craving disappears, uh, grasping after objects disappears, the mind ceases to split itself into a subject-object polarity, and you have a pure consciousness experience. And you should learn to do that repeatedly and for longer and longer periods of time. And that, and that this is part of preparing the mind for the next stage of enlightenment. And uh, 
I really have no idea whether uh, I've not been able to discern whether it is in fact possible to advance to the higher stages without learning to repeat the direct experience of emptiness, the experience of nirvana, the pure consciousness experience, uh, or if we step outside the Buddhist tradition, you know, the uh, immersion of the of the uh, soul with the divine, uh, with whatever, whatever way you want to describe it. I don't really know whether it's possible to continue without doing that. So, I would recommend to all uh, aspiring arahants that <laughs> if you're fortunate enough to become a stream mentor without. Uh, without having already uh, learned how to achieve this experience, it's still important for you to continue with your practice and learn to enter into this uh, condition of, well, the condition I described earlier. You pick your label for it. But the the enlightenment experience, it's called in, in the uh, Buddhist tradition, it's called the fruition experience. So the first time it happens is called the path experience, because you have attained to that level, you've attained to that path. And it is immediately followed by the fruition experience, because you know it, uh, you've attained to the path, and it's not over with right away, so uh, as, as there's the moment of path attainment, and it's followed by the continuing experience, however long or short it happens to be, of fruition. But it's considered very important that as soon as you can, that you recreate the circumstances and repeat the fruition experience. And uh, if it's never happened to you, and yet you have the characteristics of a stream entrant, then you should still continue with the practices that are appropriate to having that experience, and you should likewise learn to to repeat and to uh, sustain those experiences. Yes? So that, as you said, works as a warning not to be too lazy or assume that this is without work, this, this state is going to continue. Yes. That's what I'm hearing. Yes. Uh, it, is, it is definitely a warning about that. And also something else, too, that uh, an, an even stronger warning. Um, it is very easy for a stream entrant to become complacent and to fall away from their practice. Because uh, there is a period of time where life is so much better than it was before that there is not the same sort of drive and motivation to engage in the intensive practice. Now, some some yogis have just the opposite experience, and you know, at, from this point on, all they want to do is stay in retreat. They just want to, you know, keep going for it. But there is also the kind of experience where, you know, it's like, well, this this is really this is really great. This is really wonderful, you know, and uh, I'll get around to continuing my practice. <laughs> Later on. <laughs> right now, life's too good. <laughs> so that that too can happen. 
Yes. So, can you describe so when, when somebody has the the, the um, conscious experience, the conscious Marco Polo experience? Then I mean I know it's pretty ineffable, but it, is that is that the experience? That's not the experience of just pure consciousness. It's which of these experiences that you talked about is the one that kind of kicks kicks that off, or which of the, is it the insight into <coughs> impermanence itself? Like that insight that, that can cause that cascade that is like, um, that's more of a sudden Magapal experience? Uh, this, uh, can you repeat that? Uh, yes, I'll try to repeat that to the extent that I, I can, I was able to hear it. <clears throat> and please, you know, help me with this. But I think you're asking about the distinction between the Magapala experience and the experience of insights that lead up to it. Yeah, I guess just more generally, just, um, I mean, I think you've been described it before, but I'm getting confused now. Just what, um, if there's any uniformity in the way you can describe what that, that sudden Magapala experience is, whether it's the insight into impermanence, like this sudden, vivid, in real time insight, and that causes this, this cascade, or if it's something that I've, something else that we've discussed. You know, it is the experience it typically following the system of practice. This is the way it would unfold, and and you know, uh, enlightenment is an accident, and practice makes us accident prone. Okay, <laughs> 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 this is very serious. You know? it, that is really the way it happens. <laughs> but what's really valuable in Buddhism is that there are systems of practice that work, that are consistently tried and true. If you follow this particular system, you'll go through particular stages and, and you'll get where you want to be. And that's, that's what makes it really, really valuable. Now, um, in, in all of these so-called gradual systems of practice, there are most typically a series of insight experiences that precede the Magapala experience. And they prepare for that. Um, and in the typical sequences that the person would... The, the easiest insight to gain, and in a, in a typical scenario, is the yogi will have uh, uh, insight into impermanence, because that is the easiest one to really grasp, and it's it's the most uh, it's the one that you're most likely to have a direct experience of uh, fairly early on in the process. And there's a number of different practice techniques that put you in a place where you're likely to experience impermanence directly and have that kind of insight. Uh, then. Next is um, the emptiness of self and the emptiness of the perceived world. Of those two, it's the emptiness of external reality that is the most accessible. And so that's the one you're most likely to come to next. Uh, and a lot of practices focus on, on bringing about that awareness. Then is the insight into suffering and the causes of suffering. Which is, in essence, in the simplest terms, it's the recognition that 
If everything is empty and impermanent, then clinging to anything is a cause of suffering. The illusion that things are real and the illusion that things are enduring is a cause of suffering. And so then the, the yogi comes to the place of having a really deep insight uh, into impermanence and emptiness. Now, if they, depending on how much insight uh, they've acquired into not self at this point, the emptiness of self, this can be a really traumatic stage. Because to the degree that they still, still are experiencing a self, then it is a self that has discovered itself in a really terrible situation that nothing is real, nothing is permanent, everything, you know, everything that I encounter to grasp to is like grasping a red-hot iron. It will only hurt, you know, it can only bring me pain. And that's a, that, that can be a very disturbing situation. It is the deepest insight into not-self that constitutes the transformation to stream entry. Uh, but that can be preceded by a lot of not-so-deep insights. And the more not-so-deep insights you have and the more they become consolidated, then the less painful it is to discover the impermanent and empty nature. To, to really realize the emptiness of things becomes less traumatic if you've already given up some of your attachment to, to self. But the, the deepest insight of all is the one that marks the transition to, uh, uh, to stream entry. And as the very definition of it tells you, that is the realization of the emptiness of self. So in this typical progression, we'll have a yogi who's had insights into impermanence and emptiness and suffering and to some degree into not-self and has developed really strong equanimity and uh, a certain degree of tranquility. With this equanimity, they are just observing the ongoing behavior of the mind, moment by moment, the arising and passing away of phenomena. And then, at some point, something is going to arise in their consciousness, and they won't see it, they won't, their mind will not label it and recognize it in the normal way. Instead of, of recognizing it as uh, an, an image of my dead father's face, just for example. I don't have a dead father yet. Use mine. <laughs> yes, <sir. laughs> but imagine you're sitting in deep meditation and you're watching things arising and passing away without any attachment to them at all. Uh, and you have this, this deep sense of realization of the impermanence and the emptiness and the suffering nature of everything. But on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have this profound equanimity that you've developed. And, and you've come to this place with a sense that, well, 
there's nothing I can do but continue in the practice because now that I've acquired these insights, you know, I, I can't walk away from this. And you've developed the equanimity, so you're watching it. And then something comes up. Could be your dead father's face. Okay. Something comes up. But instead of the thought forming that, oh, that's the way my father used to look, or something like that, what happens is you see that's impermanence. And then all of a sudden, and that's suffering. And all of the all of your insight comes together in that moment. And your mind, you know, everything that arises passes away. And so, and you've been watching things arising and passing away. And so your mind continues to watch this thing arise and it passes away. It passes away into that emptiness that lies at the end of one passing away and prior to the arising of the next. Only what's happened is that your mind, it watches it pass away, but it has absolutely no desire to grasp on to the next thing. Through equanimity and insight, your mind just stops its constructing activity. There's a gap, and you're fully conscious, and there is no self, and there is no object, and there's this full realization of it. So the insights lead up to this fully conscious experience, which the yogi will stay in for some variable period of time, depending on the kind of practice they've done. It could be just a very brief period of time, or it could be a fairly extended period of time. But <clears throat> during that experience, the way their mind works is being altered, and the way that they're going to see things in the future is being altered. They the way that you'll find it described over and over again, if you look in the Buddhist literature, is the mind ceases in its construction, in its fabrication of reality. An analogy is that just as a monkey swinging through the jungle, grasping at one branch after another, grasps the next one before fully letting go of this one, or grasps it soon enough so that it doesn't fall. This is what keeps us in the world of samsara. The mind grasps, and what it's grasping is its own fabrications. It makes these fabrications and it grasps to them and they pass away, and it grasps the next one and so forth. And so what is happening is that through your training and through your insight and through the equanimity that you've developed as a part of this practice, you come to a point where it's not that you decide to stop grasping. It's that the fabrication and the grasping stop. And they stop long enough for you to have an experience that's completely different than what you've ever had in your life before. And this is new information. This is new information that rewrites some of the basic programming of your mind and brain. And then your mind begins fabricating and grasping again. But there is a, there is a, a very blissful state. There is a very profound emotional sense of the release 
from the separate self-identity. There is a liberation from the trap of believing in all of this. As a matter of fact, prior to that, what a yogi is very likely to experience is uh, a sense of, if it would only stop, if my mind would just stop, it won't stop. I'm so sick of this. I'm so tired of this. You know, And so when it does stop, it's this, oh, it can stop. It's possible. <laughs> it's, it's that release and the liberation that comes about. But if I'm understanding your question correctly, and I'm answering it, what has to happen is you have to create through very powerful inside experiences and through the consolidation of those inside experiences, you have to create a state in your mind that is seeing things in terms of those insights rather than seeing things the way it normally does. And you also have to have cultivated through your practice uh, very, very powerful equanimity. It's, the equanimity is the opposite of the grasping. And when those are present, that's the conditions. You've created the conditions. And you'll need to sustain those conditions, or if you lose them, recreate them again and sustain them until, uh, until your mind does what it inevitably must do. Um, this is what's come up for me. What, how does grief fit into this? Grief? Grief. Oh. <clears throat> At the break, I felt this overwhelming grief um, of, of losing the self. I think. I, yes, I, yes, yes. I'm not real sure, but it was very strong, and um, I'd like to have yes. Well, and that uh, that is what happens when you... The mind is very attached to itself, and are there any... Uh, to the degree that your mind recognizes that it uh, may lose that self that it's attached to, you will experience not just grief, but could be terror. Um, depending on the practice a person does, very often one of the signs that somebody is approaching their breakthrough is this is a growing sense of uh, of. of Dread or or grief that at the uh, they feel that something's about to happen and they're afraid of it very deeply afraid of it and then what will happen in the experience is there will be a surrender a letting go and and they have to let go um, and in the transition. It's often described as uh, as if you just jumped off a cliff. Um, some yogis will say it's exactly as though I walked up to the edge of a bottomless abyss and had no idea was what what was below, but I knew that what was behind me was so terrible that I had no choice but to step off. And so, in total fear, they step off, and instead of falling to their doom, they 
soared with the angels. Hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it seems like this... I mean, I, I don't know what this is, but, <laughs> but it's like this pregnant non-space that's like a vibrating jellyfish. Mm-hmm. Is, is that what you're... If you, <clears throat> you're, you're talking about an experience that you sometimes have, that yeah. everything is yeah. vibrating, that, that is, uh, that's an experience of impermanence. And if you, if, you, if you carry that a bit further, it can become a very profound insight. And then uh, thereafter, you can learn to tap into that repeatedly, and it will give you a really profound appreciation of emptiness. Um, the vibration, very, very rapid, fine vibration, is that what you're experiencing? Yeah, but it's so much more than that. So much, yes. I mean, it's an It's not just it's, a vibration. It's a, it's a total non-space, no images, no thoughts. Mm-hmm. But it's so, it's pregnant. It's just absolutely mm-hmm. rich, but there's nothing. Mm-hmm. It's like a great nothing, but it's everything. I mean, it's, yeah. it's very, very pregnant. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I wouldn't have put... Um, impermanence on that. Well, I put impermanence on the fact that you said you said it was like a jellyfish and vibrating. And well, yeah, because it, it, it's just—I mean—and it's not vibrating like like one could measure the 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 peaks and valleys. It's a steadiness, but there's but there, it's just a non-space. But it's so rich. There's nothing to be afraid of. It's just—it's right. a wonderful thing. Yes, that is okay. Yes, that's. That is one of those very valuable mystical experiences that uh, we're talking about. It does contain within it the impermanence. The vibration is, the impermanence is the universe coming into and out of existence. And the emptiness that you experience is, is the emptiness of ultimate being. Because when, when, and that happens often, so when it does, it's, it's like, it's like, it's so pregnant that anything can come out of it. Mm-hmm. Everything, anything and everything in the whole universe. I mean, one can understand that that's why there is this, there is this, because mm-hmm. it just has everything. Yeah. That's, that's a very good meditation. It's keep, keep dwelling in that. Continue with that. Yeah. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the direct realization meditation traditions like Mahamudra, things like that? That it sounds very different from what you're describing right no, now. All meditation traditions are direct realization traditions. Mahamudra is one where. Uh, it's, it's just taking a different approach, and it is it, what you're doing is taking the mind itself as your primary meditation object, which you eventually do in every practice anyway, uh, to some degree or another. But this is much more upfront about it. That we're meditating in Mahamudra, you meditate on the mind. 
you watch you watch the arising and passing away of phenomena in the mind. And then you, through that, you seek to understand the nature of the mind. Uh, and you seek to understand the relationship between phenomena that arise and pass away. Now, this is sort of predicated on your understanding that that the ultimate nature of reality is not dualistic. And so that all subject-object dualities are generated by the mind itself. Uh, And that it is possible to be conscious of that without having consciousness participate in the duality itself. So the idea of of the Mahamudra practice is to get beyond the duality by observing uh, both the phenomenal side of the duality and the mind and the uh, experiencer side of the duality and recognizing the relationship of these to mind. So you you see the phenomenon, usually what happens is you realize that uh, the phenomena are of the same essence and substance as the mind itself, and that they are empty in that regard. And then comes the point where you realize, aha, the mind is of the same essence and substance as the appearances. It too is empty. And so then everything you're observing is empty. And there's nothing left but the clear light of the mind that can either know phenomena dualistically or know them non-duly. But it's it's going through the same stages. You're going to you're looking for the same direct experience of non-constructed reality. You're looking at the mind, you're watching the mind, the mind creates these objects and experiences at the same time it does, it creates an observer. Right? Every duality is a polarization and separation. And so you watch that happen. That's the same thing as, as what I was describing before when I was talking to uh, Adam. You'll be doing a different practice, but you're watching phenomena arise and pass away, arise and pass away, arise and pass away. In that particular practice, you'd be more focused on the phenomena rather than on the nature of mind and the relationship between these. In Mahamudra practice, you're focusing more on the mind, and you're focusing on the mind in stillness, and you're also focusing on the mind when it creates the phenomenon and the phenomenon passes away. But you're coming to the same place. You're coming to that place where all, everything that's going on the mind arrives at the right spot, and the mind ceases its creation of the duality. And then you have a then you have the direct experience. It's in Mahamudra. Do you see how they're the same? Um, Mahamudra seems much more um, structured and analytical, and mm-hmm. um, all the things that I that I hear about, you know, the difficulty of it and all that, just don't seem to to match my experience at all. It seems so easy and so direct. I guess I'm struggling with um, 
what I perceive as a discrepancy between what I hear about enlightenment and realization and the difficulty of it and the, uh, the ease of something like Mahamudra. Well, not everyone finds Mahamudra easy. I think Mahamudra is, yes, Mahamudra is a very uh, technically sophisticated practice, and I, I think it's one of the most powerful insight practices that's ever been developed. But it doesn't suit everybody. And uh, What is it? <laughs> I think it would be too much to explain this. It's, it's a, a particular... Uh, very powerful meditation practice from the Tibetan tradition, from the Kagyu tradition specifically, although it's shared amongst the different Tibetan schools. But, but yeah, that's... Well, you know, you could say the same thing. If you find the practice that's right for you, it's not going to be that, necessarily be that difficult. But unfortunately, we don't. it's not something that we necessarily know in advance. And um, so you have to try, you, you have to do your best with the tools that you've cultivated. And if it seems necessary, you can cultivate other tools. I, I don't think enlightenment is that difficult. We make it difficult for ourselves. We make it difficult for ourselves through the ideas and concepts that we put in the way of it. And we make it difficult for ourselves due to the degree to which we uh, attach to things that are incompatible with uh, enlightenment. But it's it's not that difficult. And that's why I don't have any hesitation saying that, that you know, any, uh, any person who is interested can attain it. You know, you do have to work at it. And, and I think there are probably easier ways to attain it than um, what we know of right now. I certainly hope there are. <laughs> At least there must be some easier way to match people up with the right practices. <laughs> I think one of the things that historically has made it <clears throat> very different, or very difficult, is, you know, the very notion of emptiness and of no-self is so counterintuitive that for most of the history of these mystical traditions in the world, the people who were confronting them had... they were totally unprepared (coughs) for trying to accept something that was in such complete variance with their personal experience, their upbringing, and what their culture said. I think that's different in the modern world. I don't think that we have the same problem. I think modern, highly educated uh, people, especially, you know, uh, people in countries where there is a level of sophistication regarding these things. I don't think it's nearly as hard for us to 
grapple with the concepts of emptiness and no self. And I think that's going to make a huge difference. I think we've got a gigantic head start over uh, centuries of uh, Buddhists who went into monasteries and, and butted their heads up over and over again against ideas that seemed incomprehensible. The biggest problem we have now is we look at all these inherited attempts to make it easier to understand, and they confuse the hell out of us. They make it seem a lot more complicated and difficult than what it is. Yeah? When we say insight in a meditative way, is it more, um, is it less like, oh, I've got an idea, or I just saw yeah. something, and it's more like Mr. Goldstein's title, the experience of it itself? Yeah. And it's not really necessary to think very much about it, about the idea? Well, sometimes it's helpful to think about it, but. The, the insights that are most powerful are the ones that uh, they're a direct confrontation with the way things are that that really doesn't even really leave room for thinking. It's just you have you know you're sitting there meditating on the sensations of the breath and you look closer and closer and then they stop to being regular recognizable sensations. They're just this flux of stuff that. You know, it's just just happening, and you can back away from it, and your mind will put it back together again, and say, "Oh, well, that's this sensation, that's warmth, that's movement, that's impact." And you step back a little further and say, "Oh, well, that's in breath, or that's out breath." But you go into it and you experience directly that, "Wow, that's impermanence." Now, afterwards, you can think about it. Afterwards, you can say, "You know, if you you can think that, you can think to yourself." Wow, that was impermanence. Everything is impermanent that way. And you can reflect and say, oh, that's emptiness too. I saw how my mind created sensations out of that stuff, whatever it was. And I saw how my mind attached all of its familiar labels to it so that I could recognize it. And you can say to yourself, wow, that's emptiness. So you've discovered impermanence and emptiness through a direct experience. And then what it's really important to do, uh, not so much to think about it, but to notice it all of the other times. When you're walking down the street, noticing the impermanence that is being presented to you by every sound and every sensation and every thought that is, uh, is arising and passing away. And then likewise, keep catching your mind in the act of creating reality out of this transient stuff that's flowing through your awareness. You know. What that does, that really consolidates the insight. The direct experience of it does something that no amount of intellectual analysis can ever do. As I was saying last night, you know, we would say, okay, why don't all of these neuroscientists and philosophers and psychologists, why aren't they enlightened? Because at the intellectual level, they know so much more about impermanence and, and uh, emptiness and no self than, uh, than anybody else. Why aren't they enlightened? It's because they only know it at an intellectual level. They would become enlightened if they took the trouble to say, I know this is the way it is. Let me see if I can have a direct experience of it. And then if they continue to say, I know 
this is the way it is. I had a direct experience of it. Let me see if I can recognize it. It's happening all the time. I know every single instant it's, that it is the same things are true. I should be able to see it. And if they did that, then there would be a profound shift to take place in their mind. You know, they might have their mind. Their mind might stop fabricating, and they might have a classical enlightenment experience, or they might just gradually realize they're enlightened. But what's keeping them from is when it just stays at the level of intellectual understanding. And that's the other thing. When you study Buddhist doctrine, and the book says that this is something that cannot be understood intellectually, well, it doesn't mean it can't be understood. But understanding it intellectually is not going to do you much good. It's, it's only the direct experience, and it's only incorporating that experience into your intuitive way of perceiving things that's going to change the way your mind works. You know, this is the world round, but we rarely think of it as round when we're walking down the street because it looks pretty flat or up and down. Does the sun go around the earth or does the earth go around the sun? And unless you're an astronomer or an airline pilot, chances are you experience the earth going across the sky, at the very least, maybe across the sky of a flat earth, I don't know. But it's interesting, airline pilots have this experience of the sun going around the earth in a way that people who don't spend a lot of time up in the air don't have. And likewise, people like uh, astronomers who spend a lot of time understanding the movement of planets and stars and things like that, they get a really clear idea fixed in their mind that the earth goes around the sun and the planets go around the sun and the earth rotates on its axis and that's why the stars move across the sky in a way that somebody else, they may know that's true, but but they don't think that way. And in order to think that way, they've got to stop and they've got to rearrange their inner view of the universe to see. So something as simple as, you know, the earth is flat and the earth goes around the sun is a good example of how knowing something intellectually and having it be a part of your intuitive view of reality are two very different things. And it's when, and then the process of insight is to put you into direct contact with these truths and to also help you to incorporate them into your intuitive way of seeing things at a deep level. And it's preparatory to a more dramatic transformation which will basically permanently alter your way of viewing things. It's nice that we have minds that are so easily modified. And that we can figure out how to make these desirable changes. <laughs>